0: Thank you, it's a delight to be with you here today. Although the headline event for this tour is the dialogue tonight with Rebecca Goldstein and Jordan Peterson, nevertheless, I really enjoy these smaller events where I get to talk about my current work, which is on the atonement, and I'm glad to have the opportunity to interact with you about it. So, number one, introduction. Any biblically adequate atonement theory must include the notion of propitiation. That is to say, the appeasement of God's just wrath against sin. The source of God's wrath is his retributive justice. And so appeasement of wrath is a matter of the satisfaction of divine justice. Biblically speaking, the satisfaction of God's justice primarily takes place not as Anselm thought through compensation, but through penal substitution. Penal substitution in a theological context is the doctrine that God inflicted upon Christ the suffering which we deserved as the punishment for our sins, as a result of which we no longer deserve punishment. This explication leaves open the question whether Christ was punished for our sins. Some defenders of penal substitution recoil at the thought that God punished his beloved son for our sins. Even in their ringing defense of penal substitution, Steve Jeffrey, Michael Ovey, and Andrew Sack do not define penal substitution in such a way as to imply that Christ was punished in our place. Rather, they offer the subtler explication, quote, The doctrine of penal substitution states that God gave Himself in the person of His Son to suffer instead of us the death, punishment, and curse due to fallen humanity as the penalty for sin. If we take the definite description, the punishment due to fallen humanity, referentially, it refers to the withdrawal of God's fellowship. And blessing. This Christ suffered on the cross instead of us. On such an understanding God afflicted Christ with the suffering which had it been inflicted upon us would have been our just desert and hence punishment. In other words Christ was not punished but he endured the suffering which would have been our punishment had it been inflicted on us we should not exclude by definition such accounts from being penal substitutionary theories since Christ on such accounts suffers as our substitute and bears what would have been our punishment, thereby freeing us from punishment. An attractive feature of such an account is that it enables the Christian theologian to avert so easily the standard objections against both the coherence and justice of penal substitution. For on such accounts, it is false that God punished an innocent person for our sins, an assumption which lies at the root of the standard objections. Even so determined a critic as the 16th century Unitarian theologian Faustus Socinus recognized that God might inflict non-punitive harsh treatment on an innocent person, Job being the paradigmatic example, and the discussion of such treatment takes us out of the philosophy of law and the theory of punishment and into the familiar concerns of theodicy. Unfortunately, a penal substitution theory which does not affirm that God punished Christ for our sins seems less promising when it comes to satisfying the demands of God's justice. Penal substitution theories hold that the satisfaction of divine justice whether by a necessity of God's nature or by a free choice of God's will is a precondition of God's pardon and salvation of sinners. Here, the superiority of a theory involving Christ's punishment emerges over penal substitutionary theories according to which God does not punish Christ. For it is hard to see how divine justice could be satisfied by Christ's voluntarily taking suffering upon himself if it were not a punishment meted out for our sins. If the punishment for an offense were say deportation, how could justice be satisfied by someone else's voluntarily going or even being sent into exile unless it were intended to be a punishment for the wrongdoing in question. If the suffering or harsh treatment is not punishment, then the demands of retributive justice seem to go Unsatisfied. Part two, the alleged unsatisfactoriness of penal substitution. Socinus objected, however, that neither could punishing Christ in our place possibly meet the demands of divine retributive justice. For punishing another person for my crimes would not serve to remove my liability to punishment. So, how can penal substitution satisfy God's justice? We can formulate this objection as follows Premise one, unless the person who committed a wrong is punished for that wrong, divine justice is not satisfied. Two, if God practices penal substitution, then the person who committed a wrong is not punished for that wrong. Three, Therefore, if God practices penal substitution, divine justice is not satisfied. It follows that penal substitution is thus unsatisfactory. Part three Responses to the Alleged Unsatisfactoriness of Penal Substitution. 3.1 Metaethical Contextualization. In order to address the question of the satisfactoriness of penal substitution adequately, we must view it within the context of an overarching meta-ethical theory about the foundation of moral values and duties. Who or what determines what satisfies the demands of justice? The classic proponents of penal substitutionary theory all held to a view of God as at once the supreme legislator, judge, and ruler of the moral order. Contrast the U.S. separation of powers, according to which Congress defines crimes and their punishments, the judiciary interprets and applies those laws and punishments, and the executive holds the power of pardon. In God's case all these powers are vested in the same individual. So if he determines that the demands of justice are met by Christ's punishment who is to gainsay him? He is the source of the moral law, its interpreter and its executor. He himself determines what meets justices demands. So what is the problem? The above response might seem to imply an unsettling account of satisfaction as so-called acceptation. John Duns Scotus suggested that God might have accepted any sacrifice he pleased as satisfactory for the demands of his retributive justice. Defenders of penal substitution have not been sympathetic to acceptation accounts, for then God might have accepted as satisfactory the death of any ordinary human being or even an animal. But then it is not true as scripture affirms that, quote, it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins, end quote, Hebrews 10.14. Retributive theories of justice require not merely that the guilty deserve punishment, but also that the punishment be proportionate to the crime if justice is to be satisfied. The objector to substitutionary satisfaction would find a sympathetic ear among penal substitution theorists if he insisted that retributive justice as we know and understand it is essential to God's nature and so could not be satisfied by mere animal sacrifices. But then the question persists how does the punishment of Christ satisfy the demands of retributive justice? 3.2 penal substitution in western justice systems. Perhaps some progress can be made toward answering this question by considering how penal substitution is regarded in our secular justice system. After all if we are talking about retributive justice as we know and understand it then divine justice must be significantly analogous to enlightened human justice systems. The Anglo-American system of justice in point of fact does countenance and even endorse cases in which a substitute satisfies the demands of retributive justice. David Lewis claims that although criminal law does not permit substitutionary punishment, nevertheless, civil law does. A friend can pay a person's fine if both agree to the arrangement. Quote, yet this is just as much a case of penal substitution as the others, end quote. Lewis rejects the view espoused by expressivist theorists of punishment that these penalties are not really punishments. Some of these fines, Lewis remarks, are just as burdensome as prison sentences, and we might add, just as censorious. If we were single-mindedly against penal substitution, Lewis says, then we should conclude that fines are an unsatisfactory form of punishment. That such punishment, in other words, fails to satisfy justice's demands. But we do not. Lewis draws the lesson that penal substitution may sometimes satisfy justice's demands just as the reformers maintained. Indeed, civil law um, features uh, penal substitution uh, much more commonly than Lewis seems to realize, being not merely condoned, but actually enjoined by the law. I have reference to cases involving so-called vicarious liability. In such cases, the principle of respondeat superior, roughly let the master answer is invoked in order to impute the liability of a subordinate to his superior. For example a masters being held liable for acts done by his servant in the course of his duties. On the contemporary scene this principle has given rise to a widespread and largely uncontroversial principle Of vicarious liability of employers. An employer may be held liable for acts done by his employee in his role as employee even though the employer did not do those acts himself. Cases typically involve employers being held liable for the illegal sale of items by employees but may also include torts like assault and battery, fraud, manslaughter, and so on. It needs to be emphasized that the employer in such cases is not being held liable for other acts such as complicity or negligence in failing, for instance, to supervise the employee. Indeed, he may be utterly blameless in the matter. Rather, the liability incurred by his employee for certain acts is imputed to him in virtue of his relationship with the employee, even though he himself did not do the acts in question. In cases in which the employee cannot pay the penalty exacted by the court for the wrong done to the plaintiff, the employer will be held solely responsible for the satisfaction of justice's demands. Moreover, Patcha Lewis, criminal law also involves cases of penal substitution. For vicarious liability also makes an appearance in criminal law as well as civil law. There are criminal as well as civil applications of respondeat superior. The liability for crimes committed by a subordinate in the discharge of his duties can also be imputed to his superior. Both the employer and the employee may be found guilty for crimes which only the employee committed. For example, in Allen versus Whitehead, the owner of a cafe was found to be guilty because his employee to whom management of the cafe had been delegated, allowed prostitutes to congregate there in violation of the law. In Sheras versus Derutzen, a bartender's criminal liability for selling alcohol to a constable on duty was imputed to the licensed owner of the bar. In such cases, we have the guilt of one person imputed to another person who did not do the wrongful act, the so-called actus reus. Interestingly enough, vicarious liability is a case of so-called strict liability, where the superior is held to be guilty without being found blameworthy, since no mens rea, or blameworthy mental state, is required for conviction. Note, moreover, that in a criminal case involving criminal lia- uh, vicarious liability, the punishment of the employer may satisfy for the employee as well. In fact, the employer may actually be charged as the principal in the crime and his employee as a mere accessory, in which case only the punishment of the employer can satisfy for both. Such cases of substitutionary punishment are especially common when a corporation is held vicariously liable for crimes committed by employees. David Ormerud explains, corporations have a separate legal identity. They are treated in law as having a legal personality distinct from the natural persons, members, directors, employees, etc., who make up the corporation. In cases in which the demands of justice are too heavy for individuals to bear, the corporation will be held solely responsible for satisfying justice's demands. The lesson to be learned from cases of vicarious liability is that the demands of retributive justice are frequently met by persons other than the person who committed the wrong. What is required for the satisfaction of justice is that only persons who are liable for a wrong are punished for that wrong. Accordingly premise one should be revised to one star unless a person who is liable for a wrong is punished for that wrong divine justice is not satisfied. But then given the reformer's doctrine of the imputation of our sins to Christ, Christ is legally liable for our sins and so may satisfy divine justice by being duly punished for those sins. In the reformer's view, Christ did not merely suffer the punishment due us for our sins. Rather, as the Swiss reformed theologian François Turretin explained, our sins themselves were imputed to Christ so that he might be justly punished for them. In turn, Christ's righteousness was imputed to us. Turretin emphasizes that such imputation is a purely forensic action and does not involve either an infusion of sin into Christ or an infusion of Christ's righteousness into us. The reformers insisted that because our sins were merely imputed to Christ and not infused in him, Christ was as always personally virtuous, a paradigm of compassion, selflessness, purity and courage. Nevertheless, he was reckoned legally guilty before God, therefore he was legally liable to punishment. We can think of the imputation of our sins to Christ as a case of vicarious liability of a superior for his subordinate. Just as in civil and criminal law, a superior can be held vicariously liable for the wrongdoing of his subordinate, so God held Christ vicariously liable for our sins. Therefore, he was legally liable to punishment for our sins. Since in Christ's case, someone who was liable for a wrong was punished for that wrong, his punishment for our sins does not violate a necessary condition of the satisfaction of divine justice as the critic of penal substitution maintains. Section 3.3, substitution and representation. The above consideration suffice to dispense with the objection. But now consider once more premise two. If God practices penal substitution, then the person who committed a wrong is not punished for that wrong. In cases of penal substitution, is it always the case that the person who did the wrong is not punished for that wrong. Contemporary theologians have disputed the point by distinguishing between exclusionary place-taking, excludierende stellvertretung, and inclusionary place-taking, includierende stellvertretung. This important distinction requires a word of explanation about substitution and representation respectively. In cases of simple substitution someone takes the place of another person but does not represent that person. For example, a pinch hitter in baseball enters the lineup to bat in the place of another player. He is a substitute for that player but in no sense represents that other player. That's why the batting average of the player whom he replaces is not affected by the pinch hitter's performance. On the other hand, a simple representative acts on behalf of another person and serves as his spokesman, but is not a substitute for that person. For example, the baseball player has an agent who represents him in contract negotiations with the team. The representative does not replace the player but merely advocates for him. These roles can be combined in which case we have neither simple substitution nor simple representation but rather substitutional representation or representative substitution. A good illustration of the combination of substitution and representation is to be found in the role of a proxy at a shareholders meeting. If we cannot attend the meeting ourselves we may sign an agreement authorizing someone else to serve as our proxy at the meeting. He votes for us and because he has been authorized to do so his votes are our votes. We have voted via proxy at the meeting of shareholders. The proxy is a substitute in that he attends the meeting in our place, but he is also our representative in that he does not vote instead of us, but on our behalf so that we vote. This combination is an inclusionary place-taking. Turretin believes that Christ in bearing our punishment was both our substitute and representative before God. He states, the curse and punishment of sin which he received upon himself in our stead secures to us blessing and righteousness with God in virtue of that most strict union between us and him. By which, as our sins are imputed to him, so in turn, his obedience and righteousness are imputed to us. This relation is not one of simple substitution. There is an inclusive union here, which is the basis Of the imputation of our sins to Christ and his righteousness to us. According to Turretin, so long as Christ is outside of us and we are outside of Christ, we can receive no benefit from his righteousness. But God has united us with Christ by means of a twofold bond, one natural, namely communion of nature by the incarnation, and the other mystical, namely the communion of grace by Christ's mediation, in virtue of which our sins might be imputed to Christ and his righteousness imputed to us. Christ was punished in our place and bore the suffering we deserved, but he also represented us before God so that his punishment was our punishment. Christ was not merely punished instead of us, rather we were punished by proxy. For that reason divine justice is satisfied. How does it come to pass that we are so represented by Christ? As mentioned, Turretin proposed two ways in which we are in union with Christ. First, by way of his incarnation, and second, by way of our mystical union with him. Although theologians often appeal to this latter union of believers with Christ to explain the efficacy of his atonement, such an account seems to be viciously circular. Turretin emphasized that it is our union with Christ that is the basis of Of the imputation of sins to Christ and of our justification. But the problem is that the mystical union of believers with Christ is the privilege only of persons who are already regenerate and justified. There is here a vicious explanatory circle. In order to be in mystical union with Christ one must first be justified but in order to be justified one must first be in mystical union with Christ. What is needed is a union with Christ which is explanatorily prior to, even if chronologically simultaneous with, imputation and justification. Turretin's first proposal is therefore to be preferred. In virtue of Christ's incarnation and I would add his baptism whereby Jesus identified himself with fallen humanity, Christ is appointed by God to serve as our proxy before him. The Logos, the second person of the Trinity, has voluntarily consented to be appointed by means of his incarnation and baptism to serve as our proxy before God so that by his death, he might satisfy the demands of divine justice on our behalf. Herein, we see the organic connection between Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection. God's raising Jesus from the dead is not only a ratification to us of the efficacy of Christ's atoning death, it is a necessary consequence of it For by his substitutionary death, Christ fully satisfied divine justice. The penalty of death having been fully paid, Christ can no more remain dead than a criminal who has fully served his sentence can remain imprisoned. Punishment cannot justly continue. Justice demands his release. Thus Christ's resurrection is both a necessary consequence and a ratification of his satisfaction of divine justice. Section four: concluding remarks. In summary, while proponents of penal substitution theories which do not feature Christ's being punished for our sins may have difficulty rebutting the charge that on such theories Christ's suffering is unsatisfactory, the proponents of penal substitution theories which do feature Christ's being punished for our sins are not so clearly vulnerable to this charge. We need to keep in mind that God as the supreme legislator, judge, and ruler himself determines what satisfies the demands of his justice. If we say that retributive justice, as we know and understand it, belongs essentially to God, the question will then become why substitutionary punishment cannot satisfy the demands of retributive justice. We saw that in both civil law and criminal law we find cases of penal substitution which are regarded as satisfactory of justices demands. We may think of Christ as being vicariously liable for our sins and his punishment as satisfying for us just as an employer might satisfy justice's demands on behalf of his employee. Moreover, an inclusionary penal substitutionary theory does not preclude that we are punished for our sins in Christ's being punished for our sins. For Christ's being divinely and voluntarily appointed to act not merely as our substitute but as our representative enables him to serve as our proxy before God. So that when he is punished, we are punished by proxy to the satisfaction of divine justice.